Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a weekly podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex philosophical, spiritual, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. Friends, I think we can sense the impending challenges uh, of technology as we emerge from these quarantine conditions. Um, Many books are being written about surveillance capitalism, the problems with Silicon Valley, um, the hyper-tech blind solutions to very human problems. Technology has its own morality embedded in it, and I don't just mean whether or not we should create new technologies, but technology itself. And the ways that that filters out into or stems from history and oppression uh, is really worth taking note of. So to discuss this in the weirdest and most occult way possible, I invited Peter Bievergal onto the show. Peter is an author uh, most I guess pertinently to this episode of a book called Strange Frequencies, which is all about how uh, technology intersects with spirituality, mysticism, occultism, and more. Peter and I talk about all sorts of things. Um, We talk about the fact that there are no unaltered states of consciousness, so altered state of consciousness is kind of a misnomer. We talk about how technology can prohibit human growth in a lot of ways, even as we think it's helping us advance or progress. We talk about using magic to hack technology, how Elon Musk is a kind of anti-enchanter who's deadening the world through the misuse of wonderment. Why flipping a coin is a magic act of occult technology. Um, And I think all of it really points us in the direction of the potential of seeing technology through a spiritual lens and through spiritual uh, ideas and uses. Peter's books all relate towards uh, the intersection of spirituality and art and technology in some way or another. Uh, And in fact, he has a new book coming out um, later this year that's an anthology called Appendix and the Eldritch Roots of Dungeons and Dragons um, about the magical inspirations for that very popular (laughs) role-playing game. Um, You can get all his books... Uh, through bookshop.org and uh, this is not a plug for bookshop.org so much as it is for my Patreon. (laughs) Um, I have a list on my Patreon show notes which are accessible to anybody. Um, You just click on the link and it takes you to all the uh, books that are featured on this episode. And I'm giving them kind of a big up without them. They're not paying me or anything. But basically, bookshop.org is supporting independent bookstores around the U.S. Uh, it's only in the U.S., but they'll deliver books to you um, from independent bookstores, whatever one is closest to you and has the book. And they've raised over $2 million so far for bookstores that were facing a lot of problems in the quarantine conditions. So if you go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib, click on the show notes notes, which also have tons of links to other things and quotes and all that kind of stuff that uh, are in the show, um, you can find that book list. Also, while you're there, I would suggest um, (laughs) supporting the show. If you do support the show already, thank you so much. 
year how I keep this show and really my life and all the work I pour into this going. Um, if you do not, please go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib, C-O-N-N-E-R-H-A-B-I-B, and pledge whatever amount you feel comfortable with. I know a lot of people are facing weird financial uh, times and whatever in their lives. And so you can give at whatever level feels comfortable and you get cool stuff uh, back in return. So patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. That's a really useful way to uh, use technology to support weird spiritual worldviews getting out into the world, like the ones that appear on this show. So without further ado, here's the episode with Peter Buergall. Here we go. everybody it's against everyone with connor habib hello peter biebergall how are you doing good thanks for having me it's we've had a lot of uh social media interactions but this is the first time we've ever really um talked i think i know i know it's one of those things where like the i only do episodes in person but the quarantine lockdown stuff has brought me uh together with a lot of people that I otherwise would not have been able to meet with for the show. So it's great. (laughs) Um, Okay. So let me, let me start here with a a quick story. Um, So once I was, I was, gosh, I must've been in my late twenties and I was in the car with a friend of mine driving through Pennsylvania and it was nighttime. We had just left the bar that we are at And (laughs) he turned the corner, he was driving, he turned the corner and I saw something on the side of the road. And what I thought I saw, I saw a skeleton walking down this, walking down the side of the road. And I kind of lost my mind and I was like, Oh my God, turn back, turn back. There's a skeleton, you know, but I didn't say that. I just actually was like, what, what, what? You know, I just started shouting and then I said, turn around, turn around because I wanted to see it again because I'm the person that gets murdered in horror movies, I guess. So I told him to turn back around. And what it was, was this man who, he was dressed in all white and he had a very pale face and he, he had like different colored pants, but he was dressed mostly in white. He had a very pale face. He was very skinny. And for some reason at night, he was also wearing sunglasses. So it looked like he had, you know, like sockets. Oh, like sockets. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Eye sockets, right. And so um, I had a moment after that where I thought, oh, this is kind of how some uh, supernatural encounter stuff works, where when you have this moment of total belief, It actually, yes, it wasn't what I thought it was at first. And yet I felt like I had also somehow let something in, you know, like that, that completely convinced self had made something possible in that moment. And I was sort of haunted by that moment for a long time, even though it was, you know, just a guy in a, you know. Uh, white hoodie or whatever. And this kind of thing seems to come up a lot. Um, 
<laughs> you know, for you as well. Um, just listen to you talk and uh, whether, whether it's, you know, a book about psychedelics or it's about the, um, you know, the parent or the supernatural attack and all that, this kind of stuff seems to come up for you, this space, you know, this weird moment of belief and disbelief and confusion. And um, I wanted to start there, I guess, you, you know, or to quote it, just to sort of sum it up, you said, you know, there's this tiny split second of doubt or ambiguity and that that was something you want to see if you could blow up that big yeah. that space. I mean, I think your description of that experience is, is spot on. And what I, I really appreciate about it is that you allowed for that ambiguity to stay with you, that once you learned what it was, certainly you realized that there wasn't actually a skeleton walking, but it doesn't, it didn't in any way diminish your understanding of that kind of state of consciousness that's possible mm-hmm. and the way in which our imagination can work in that way. And so probably in this conversation, we'll use the word imagination a lot. And I want to make sure that it's clear that when I talk about imagination, or when we talk about it, that I'm not talking about things that are imaginary, meaning made up. I'm talking about that part of the human experience where creativity is born, where I believe religious and even magical experiences are born. It's not to say that they're any less, excuse me, true or false, but simply that that question of true or false kind of becomes irrelevant when we're talking about that. I mean, let's talk about it as sort of like the theater of the mind where we have this landscape that we can play inside of and allows us, I think, to get glimpses of the kinds of things that for all intent and purposes make things like a spiritual life or a religious life possible, right? Because there's some glimpse into the possibility of the numinous, the possibility of something that is beyond normal, perceptible experiences even though when we recognize that it happened the way that it happened for you, what it did and the way you described it is, is it opened up a door into recognizing that this is the way that we can experience certain things. And I think there's a lot of beauty and wonder there that we, we don't really know how to allow ourselves to just continue to have that feeling of being haunted without having to quickly either decide that it was real or not real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do sometimes wonder what would have happened if we had turned, we hadn't turned back. Right. Or if, <laughs> <All right. laughs> or if, you know, we had turned back and the guy just sort of, you know, walked into the woods to pee or something like that, you know, um, it would have, it would have stayed with me in a much different way, but then, you know, I do also think about people that have that moment and do something else with it, which is what you're, you're also talking about. We're like, you know, I have friends who, a friend, he was in a car with somebody else and they were driving, uh, again, in New England. Um, oh, no, the other one was in Pennsylvania, right? They were in New England and they drove through a woman 
Um, basically, oh. not not a living woman, sure. <laughs> unless there's a part of the story he's not telling me about. But um, you know, they drove through a woman, and they're both like, "Did you see that?" Yeah, yeah, they both saw it. But nothing about their worldview changed as a result of that. He just kind of shuffled it off and compartmentalized it. And um, I think what you're talking about is, you know, the kind of third a third way that's available, not, not the only alternate way between belief and disbelief, but rather perhaps there's something there that's not about just fitting it in or shuffling it away or being completely uh, shattered, you know, right. uh, having, having your sense of reality completely shattered. Right. I'm wondering, you know, where the, <laughs> where the sort of morality lies in each of these approaches or the ethics or whatever. I mean, I do want to maybe get back to the question of whether or not it's irrelevant that that was a real in quotes or unreal experience, but we'll do that later in the episode. But I do think like there's something about each one of these interpretations that brings with it a kind of, I don't know, a sort of moral universe, I would almost say. Yeah, that's really, really important. I think part of it, though, is that when we talk about, like, your friend that didn't change their worldview, part of why I don't think, well, say, it, it, those, these kinds of experiences haven't for me is because they're not, you can't replicate them, right? You can't, you can only say, well, I can, I can only be able to say for myself that things seem to glitch out once in a while, right? The, the, the sort of the, the way the universe works that allows sort of us to get these glimpses, but they're not, they're not, you know, like the way that science expects us to be able to replicate things. So it's even a question of like, I'm not really even interested in the, well, I shouldn't say interested, but the question of, of scientific rigor around these things is also something that for me feels a lot like literalness in the same way that belief can look that way. So for example, the sort of scientific process by which, or people have attempted to use sort of the, the language and the techniques of science to try to quote, prove that life exists after death. Right. And you can look at the various results of that and, hmm. And you still are going to see that it's not measurable in the same way that, say, you know, our ability, you know, the kind of science or the kind of technology that makes us being able to talk on Zoom, right? This is, we can duplicate this as many times as we want. Maybe once in a while your Wi-Fi will go down, right? But <laughs> it's pretty stable, right? This way of understanding the science that makes the technology that makes zoom possible is pretty stable and measurable. Right. Um, and so when it comes to things like when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to talking about questions of the divine or questions about um, questions of magic or questions of the supernatural, I personally don't tend to look for things that try to prove those things as being measurably real in the same way that we might talk about other things, 
being able to be demonstrated in that way. And part of it is because I think when we're talking about like the experience that you had, that your friend had, experience of, of, of religious ecstasy, experiences of, of prophetic types of things that we've seen historically, experiences of, you know, your chaos, uh, sigil magic working is more about states of consciousness for me than it is about the way the physical universe actually works, right? And now we could get into huge questions about the relationship of consciousness to physics and all of that. And I'm, I'm plenty interested in that, but, but I think that ultimately, you know, we, we can't, we haven't fit that key into the lock yet. There are those that will say, absolutely, we will one day discover that consciousness is purely a chemical brain, right, response. But there are others like my, one of my favorite thinkers, Thomas Nagel, whose brilliant book that came out a couple of years ago called Mind and Cosmos, says, you know, um, we, we simply will not be the, – the tools that we have right now will never be able to locate consciousness in the brain. Right. Yeah. Just to interject, like I love that book, although I also felt like I was banging my head against the wall, like the whole time, because I thought it's right in front of you because we could just talk about consciousness um, as the, you know, sort of wellspring of being and, and reality. And he doesn't, he kind of gets there and then pulls back and gets there and pulls back, which I think is really sort of interesting and weird. And, and I, and I definitely want to bring that up, you know, again, maybe a little bit later, but just to sort of talk about something that you said, because there's so much in there about the stability of the universe um, and the stability of certain kinds of technology First of all, it is funny that I was having Wi-Fi issues before we um, met, met up and you talked about <laughs> the sort of repeatability of things. Um, <laughs> right. And I do think, like, can we investigate uh, what, what assumptions are there about stability and repeatability and what that might tell us about um, a kind of understanding of again, I keep saying morals, but I think a moral sense. And one of the reasons why I'm saying moral, I'm thinking of, um, moral, I'm thinking of John Keeley, um, you know, the Keeling machine. I can't remember if you mentioned this in strange. No, no, I didn't. No. Tell me a little bit about it. Yeah. Yeah. This guy that in 1872, this inventor, he, um, created this machine that, um, you know, for the Keeley motor company, Basically, it was this giant engine, and he poured water into it and blew into it, and that was it. And it was this it it was this kind of grinding, tearing machine. It could tear ropes apart. It could break iron bars. Um, it could uh, pull, uh, I think, nails out of boards and stuff like that. I, I don't exactly know how it works because obviously there's not you know, a video of it. But basically he said, you know, I just pour the water in and I blow in and I'm working with um, the etheric powers of creation is sort of what he said. And so he had this huge company and then like nobody could reproduce the machine. Right. Right. And so people called him a crank, but then interestingly, like 
theosophists and then later Rudolf Steiner, they both sort of picked up on this machine. They were like, he's actually not a crank. Like the problem is that this machine just wouldn't work for anybody except for him. Um, and he didn't understand that. He didn't understand that the principles that he had accessed were completely individualized. Um, and so I think like there's a, when, when Steiner was talking about him, he said the mechanical and the moral must interpenetrate each other because the mechanical is nothing without the moral. And it's very interesting. It's, it's like, sounds like a precursor to like radionics, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You need the, you need the human in, you need that human, I guess you could call it in some ways a moral component, right? To actually activate it. Right. And that was, and so that was with Keeley's machine, um, was, you know, the idea was he had actually discovered some really deep occult principle. This is, and I, I can't remember if it's Madden Blavatsky or someone else was like, yeah, he's messing with things that are really, really intense and it's really good that nobody can actually figure out how he's doing it (laughs) Um, because it would be, you know, a real trouble for people. But I think, you know, comparing that idea that the inner, the inner penetration of the mechanical and the moral, um, you know, that's something that comes up in strange frequencies a lot, but also, I just think comparing that to the repeatability, the stability that you're talking about, it seems to me then that we could also name, if we wanted to, a kind of moral sense around the idea of repeatability. And in some ways, we might, you know, or we might say that it's immoral because there's not, there's nothing interactive. It's just a sort of collective agreement that things will repeat in a certain way that things will be there for us. It's kind of decadent almost in its own <laughs> way. Right, right, right. Yeah. It reminds me though of Foucault, um, Pe- Foucault's Pendulum, Umberto Eco's mm. wonderful novel. And one of the things that the, uh, one of the main characters warns his companions against is he says, do not turn metaphysics into mechanics. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I think that that's also a kind of moral imperative as well, because what that means is that when our metaphysics become mechanics, when we think that we can, when they are repeat, when we believe that they are repeatable, then that means that our ethics become bound up in that particular structure of the universe that we believe we have formed, right? Right. right. And, and what that, then you end up with all kinds of ways in which you can justify the worst kinds of behavior, mm-hmm. right? Um, or sometimes good behavior as well, right? If you believe, I mean, I, you know, we're, we're in a time right now where, um, you know, the history of African-American experience in, in the United States is just is hitting us over the heads again, right? In, in ways that are just, just profound, and and let's take let's take for example um, the history of slavery and its relationship to um, to repeatability and uh-huh. <laughs> right the morality of repeatability. Okay, so if you look at the 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 industry of slavery believed that the that the Bible contained right a a, a, a demonstrable 
um, quality, a, a demonstrable imperative that slavery was moral, right? Mm -hmm. That you could have slaves, but but it also and and so you could so there you have this 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 kind of um, now you've turned metaphysics you've turned mythology right into mechanics because you say now we have an actual um, industrial structure in place that we can justify based on this text this <laughs> this this text which arguably um, is mythological in its you know foundation um, but at the and, and so that we see that's the worst but at the same time the slaves read the same text and saw in there a God who actually frees slaves via mm -hmm. the story of Exodus, right? And that then becomes its own moral imperative towards right. a promise of, right? So, so that's just, I mean, that's, that's sort of a heady example, but I just, I think it's, a, it, it characterizes the ways in which, um, but, but what I think is important about, the slaves understanding of that and then later the civil rights movement of that is that they saw this as a mythological echo that kept transmitting through time as opposed to the slave owners that saw this as a literal almost you know i don't want to use the word scientific but you know something that could actually inform an industry right right i think i think maybe that the difference, one of the many differences between those two points of view is that, I mean, people that are encountering the Bible as a sort of liberatory text in some way, it's not, um, it, it, that is bound to have many different interpretations, right? And lots of room for um, the way that it might be felt, experienced, thought about, acted out on. Um, whereas the, the idea of sort of using that text or any text as a um, as a kind of formula, you know, in itself has this kind of repeatability factor that it's constraining in a way, right? And that constraining, you know, limited exactitude of interpretation. Um, it means that it has to be used in this one way. There's actually, what's the, um, uh, I, I don't exactly know how to say his name right, but um, the the electronic experimental musician, Erky uh, Kroniemi, I think it is. But he said, um, as long as humans can misuse technology, we'll never be slaves to it. <laughs> right, exactly. That's, that. yes, and that's, that's the hacker ethos, and that's essential. Right to thinking about, I think, all of this, because, we're, you know, there's a, right, yeah, and that, we should talk about that later, because I think that that, the relationship between um, hacking and consciousness and magic are all completely bound up in each other. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, one of the reasons why I really want to have you on the show now, aside from just finally having this conversation with you, um, is because I'm just becoming increasingly interested in technology that works on principles of non-repeatability or that sort of aligns itself or leans into the individual in a certain way. And not just um, 
not just the technology in the way that we think of it, like, you know, making planes or, uh, you know, whatever, but, you know, for example, you were really interested, I know in Carlos Castaneda and a lot of his remedies or cures or whatever, you know, I'm not, I don't know that much about him. I know a little bit, but I know that they were very often individualized, like, you know, and although some of them have been reproduced for, you know, many people, a lot of them were just like, kind of one-offs it was like you're suffering from this i'm going to give you this you're suffering from right. this i'm going to give you but this but he all, we also know that his experiences were probably fictionalized to a large extent it doesn't mean that the techniques didn't have value right right um, yes yeah but and 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 edward casey also right and and yeah. also homeopathy um you know is is although there are you know you can go buy the acilocosinum or whatever from the from whole foods but um you know, I think medical technologies, at least um, to some extent, are becoming, uh, well, <laughs> older ones were based on the knowledge that they related deeply to the individual's interaction with them. But I do think that that's, you know, that individualized, personalized um, biochemical individuality principle is also becoming more popular again, you know, in a way um, that we realize that you need to take into account the person's interaction with this technology or whatever that's it is. because you need to take into account that person's consciousness. Right. Yes. Yeah. Right. It's really interesting. Right. So like, yeah. I would love to have that more like, uh, you know, the medicine seems so easy to do as difficult as this to do it with that. It seems easier somehow because it's interacting with the nexus of like a bounded up individual. But if we start talking about something like an engine or a plane or whatever else it is, it becomes much more difficult to even imagine or intuit that. And it seems to me that you've written quite extensively about tech where that happens. And I'm really invested in thinking about how we could build some of our technological ideas as we go forward around this principle, um, that space that you wanted to blow up, this um, this merging, you know, of the person and the thing without being fundamentalist about it and being like, let's have cyborgs and implant chips into people's bodies or, you know, whatever. Right. Well, I think because the word that we haven't used yet, which is absolutely essential for me, is enchantment. Mm-hmm. Because tech, so it's thinking about technology as we we think of enchantment as something that happens in an in a non tech way, right? Enchantment happens through story or through religious experience or through even games or whatever. But to think about technology as being something that can induce moments of enchantment. The problem with enchanted states, though, is enchanted states do not live well in literal mm. locations, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Um, they, all, they certainly don't live well in skeptical locations either. <laughs> they live in a place that says neither of those is a value right now. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so it's a way one, – one of the ways I've been thinking about it a lot lately, um, and it's interesting because it also has to do with games, uh, um, and in particular role-playing games, my dear friend and um, 
Uh, so you might have heard of his name is Gareth Branwyn. He is sort of one of the key architects from way back of both the maker movement. He's one of the first uh, writers on cyberpunk and the internet. He was a longtime writer for Boing Boing, uh, Wired. And anyways, he's a very close friend. And one of the things we've been working on is thinking about, you know, sort of how can the technology, quote, the technology of role-playing games be used in a, Ma- in a way to induce magical states of consciousness, uh, uh-huh. right? And part of the way of thinking about that is is maps, right? And map and, and thinking about enchantment happening in using maps as a way of of um, guiding towards guiding paths of enchantment because maps are not the literal territory, as the expression goes, right? You can, you can create any kind of map you want. You could take the human body and you can do the nervous system, but you could also put the Kabbalistic tree of life on top of it, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, they're just maps and they tell us different things or they allow us to play with the idea of the body in very different ways. If you're sick, you certainly want a good map. Uh, if, you know, if you have a nervous system condition, you certainly want a good map of of the nervous system of the human body. But if you would like to somehow um, experience some uh, relationship to a particular sephirot, you know, in the Kabbalistic tree of life, then that's the map that you would use. And that's, that's talking more about a map of consciousness or, or an idea of consciousness. Right. And so, maps, when we think about enchantment, we can think about there, it's really just the template that we're using on top of the experience or on top of it. And I, and again, I like to think about it as, as, as a map because it, it enchant, when we think about enchantment, we often think about those stories of the, of the person going into the forest, right? And suddenly mm-hmm. they're in a completely new, something is, has changed completely about that environment, and that's where now magic things can happen that couldn't otherwise happen outside of that force. You know, it's a place where, you know, a little bear, a, a, a stuffed bear, when you use a different map for sort of the seven acre woods in Winnie the Pooh stories, you have a stuffed bear now becomes a talking bear mm-hmm. that can walk around with you. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the sort of inverse of that is, again, I, I mean, I would guess we use a medical um idea here like when you go to the doctor and they have been sort of trained with all this information and i I think a lot of people have had this experience and you sit down across from the doctor and you tell them everything that's going on and it almost sometimes feels as if they have a kind of like a like a, a floating chart of the human anatomy that they learned in medical school, school, like right next to them. Right. And when you talk to them, they consult that rather than you, you know, <laughs> like they have this map that's kind of floating there and they're like, well, this and this and this and this and this, you know, uh, this sort of translating, you know, uh, mediatory specter that's like next to them that makes it difficult to, uh, interact with or communicate with the human being. Whereas I think the kinds of maps that we might want to overlay experience are things that lead us deeper into 
uh, maybe not, but I think, you know, in a lot of ways would lead us deeper into an experience of the actual human and the individual. Right. And so, um, I think that there's lots to that. Um, I do wonder if (laughs) is maybe in a way, you know, it's also the way, the way that people get lost in the maps were what people who are afraid of Dungeons and Dragons in the eighties well, right, exactly. were like freaked out about, right? Like right. you're going to get lost in the, you're going to get lost in the map. Like you're going to be yes. it's like that Rona, remember that Rona Jaffe novel, Mazes and Monsters. I yes. Think it was called. You definitely can get lost in the maps and you can get lost in the maps in two ways. You can either, you can take, well, um, you can take them literally from, uh, the outside as seeing them as something that are, you know, um, Satan's attempt to uh, draw young people into his <laughs> legion, right? You can uh-huh. see it that way. But one of the things that, and I've experienced, um, sat, you know, in some way, sadly in my own life, but that you can see in others is, um, let, let's take the occult, for example. When you talk about... Um, chains of um uh, chains of sympathies right and and like is to like Mm -hmm. and this sort of never ending ways in which um what's the word i'm looking for you know uh that kind of magic is uh, correspondences correspondences yeah, Yeah. yeah yeah so so just think about the magic of correspondences and think about how you can get lost inside of those maps of correspondences in a way that just creates one thing pointing to another, pointing to another, pointing to another. And you can see this often in certain kinds of um, mental illnesses. You can see this hmm. in way, I, you know, schizophrenia in some ways could be characterized as as a, di- a digression of infinite correspondences, right? That never leads to some final kind of uh, understanding of things, right? It just keeps opening up and opening up and opening up. I mean, my own experience personally, um, as a young person who tried to have a relationship to hallucinogens ended up very badly for me mm-hmm. and ter- and the world and, and turned the world for me into an impenetrable catalog of correspondences mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that I could never, ever get to some complete understanding of that was going to s- settle or satisfy my inner turmoil, right? So those are, dif- those are different ways we can get lost in, in the maps, I think. I mean, I see that with people all the time. You know, again, I don't, I don't want to um, undermine or make light of anybody's experiences spiritual or otherwise but you know i have friends who you know their their lives for all intent and purposes are pretty out of control (laughs) but they will every year or so go and have their ayahuasca experience in peru right Mm -hmm. and they keep going back to that but they come back and nothing actually changes (laughs) right sure so they just keep they keep following that map to where it leads them but they're lost inside the map because then they can't take any of the information into their life that isn't inside that forest, as it were, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, I mean, you know, the thing about the map is that it has to be dangerous 
or it's not effective, right? Well, like right, exactly. Have, no, that's it, absolutely right. It has to have the intensity of presence that lends yes. itself to being a bit of danger. So it, there's a different quality that's also required to be able to use a map and not get fucked up by it. So, you know, the the... But your first story was fantastic. You actually have inside of your consciousness a map uh-huh, where skeletons uh-huh. can walk down the street. Right. <laughs> Even when you knew that it wasn't true in yeah. that way, in that literal way, it doesn't mean that it isn't a template that you can put on the world and have that profound and uncanny experience. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's true and then it makes me wonder or worry or whatever that actually like i had the capacity to ask that question for reasons that uh, i don't want to say they're innate maybe karmic maybe whatever that you know uh again it's this sort of separate quality or something so like when i think about people that get lost in psychedelic uh you know, uh, experiences or responses or whatever it, in the, in varying ways. Um, it's to me, I just think, okay, when you take certain substances, you get into a spiritual state. Um, but then when you come out, so, so you have these things like you drink water and you're like, Oh my gosh, this is what water tastes like, you know? Right. Um, or you see grass and you're like, I'd never realized it was that green before or whatever. And then you leave the state and you're trying to explain it to people. But even as you try to explain it, it doesn't have the same resonance for you because when, because the state and the substance are two different things. Like you can't, um, sorry, spiritual state and spiritual substance are two different things. So when you're in the state, all the wisdom draws itself from being in that state. So when, right. you, when you're out of it, you can't reaccess that without no, being able to. No, but there is a to, solution. The yeah, solution yeah. is art. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Right. Well, the, right, because the solution is, you know, um, having engaging in the process of an overlapping state, right, even though making art and being in the state of, you know, uh, a hallucinogenic uh, state is not exactly the same. There's intersection, there's overlap. Um, but I do think that there's, um, maybe I'm not explaining this completely correctly. Like I, most of my life have had some sort of understanding of spiritual principles, even though I was raised with no religion in my life at all. And, um, it's been really frustrating to me because, uh, you know, all these books about, spiritual development they're like how to get over your blocks of believing in this or believing in that or understanding that you know uh uh these you know or or visualization or whatever and i just thought i can do all that like i don't need to go through these stages what's frustrating to me is that i can sort of sense that it's there but i can't access it so in other words i had the presence of this spiritual substance in my life all the time but i couldn't enter into the spiritual state and those are two different things and so i think that um how why am i saying all this because the the way in which 
the map functions is that it leads you from it, it is a spiritual substance that leads you through tracing its pathway into spiritual state. But then you can't always bring back what you've experienced there, you know, to your life. You have to have some other sort of capacity or the ability to balance these two principles, if that makes sense. That's right. I mean, this goes to the very heart of, you know, what, um, and I, I quote this guy too much and, but Rudolf Otto in -hmm. talking about, you know, sort of the origins of religion is talking about, um, these encounters, these, these sort of primal encounters with what he calls the numinous, the mysterium tremendum, right? And they are ineffable. You can't communicate them. You, there's nothing you can do. They are you standing raw before, you know, God saying to Moses, you shall not look upon me and live, right? It's in all the stories of the gods we have, you know, you stand before the God and you are immolated, right? There's, you can't, you, there's nothing you can do except to have the pure experience. But you may be able to mythologize that experience in some ways to turn it into story to carve the paintings on the cave walls right to begin to kind of sim using symbols and metaphor as a way of uh, transmitting some minor if if you will element of that completely ineffable experience and once you do that now you be, this this mythologizing is essential, and then you build, and then eventually you build communities around this, right? And of course, very quickly those things become then um, dogmatic, right? That's always the problem, uh-huh. right? And depending on your dogma, <laughs> it might be pretty oppressive or whatever. Um, but the point is, is that art, I think, by its nature. It's just sort of a weird thing to give art, just to say art knows something. But there's something about art and artists that recognize that because you're dealing with symbol and metaphor, even when it's just, even when it's a realistic painting, right? You're still only having an apprehension of the actual thing. That there's less likely, there's there's less danger of falling into the kind of literalism that we are saying is makes it difficult right to actually get to these enchanted states right well i think yeah the the interesting thing is that people who are truly great spiritual teachers are able to sort of stand in that state be in that spiritual state and then bring a lot of it back right Mm -hmm. and and but there's also (laughs) maybe we don't recognize when we make art or when we uh when we enter into a spiritual state and come back, how much we bring back. Cause we, we could think of it as small, but I'm thinking of a story, you know, even if it's like nightmare in Elm street or whatever, where if you go into the dream and you, and you grab something in the dream and you wake up and it's in your hand, you know, like then the whole dream world kind of comes with you or like <laughs> right, the, yeah. the figures of it. So in some ways, you know, it's like that there's the, Wittgensteinian like proposition or well proposition is not the right word to use because he means that specifically but the Wittgensteinian idea that if you um you know like you can't change one thing about the world without changing everything right so if you bring a piece of this dimension 
or whatever it is, the state into, you know, our normal state, quote unquote, normal state, then it kind of undoes and flips over and has the potential to change so much, which we obviously do see with people who were religious figures, right? Like right. you see someone like Joseph Smith or if you see, I mean, I'm, I'm picking someone more recent, right? If you see someone like Joseph Smith or, uh, you know, John Jack Parsons and L. Ron, subsequently L. Ron Hubbard or whatever, they right. sort of bring something through and then it, ripples and echoes and echoes out into the world, you know? Yes. And that's the notion of magic causing change to occur. Mm -hmm. The change isn't the levitation of the, of the, of your, you know, of the car if in your driveway, right? right? The changes in these sort of, I mean, they're sort of like artifacts. I mean, this is Alan Moore, you know, uh, the comic writer, novelist, great, you know, magician thinker who essentially says, you know, the, the purpose of magic is art, not to levitate the car. That's not right. so that you, you know, have conjure some demons to, to do your laundry. Right. Um, but to, to come into interaction with these quote entities, whatever they may or may not be and transform that experience into something that can be transmitted in some form. Right. Right. Well, that's, I mean, that's one of the great, things about your, you know, you write about a lot about spiritualism. Um, and that is one of the principles of spiritualism. It's like, <laughs> we can say, oh, hey, you know, spiritualism is bringing the dead into the room with you and ectoplasmic encounters and all this kind of stuff. But what we can see is the spiritual effect of spiritualism in some instances um, in some places, has been to culturally, in consciousness, uh, limit, reduce, and debase the concept of hell, right? So right. Um, we we had such a dampening of our belief and acceptance of hell and, and the invention of hell um, and eternal torment when spiritualism showed up and in some ways re redeemed that because it was a consciousness event, you know, spiritualism. It's That's interesting. Right. I mean, there's like real issues with spiritualism from a moral standpoint. And again, this goes back to Rudolf Steiner says like, you know, if you ever want to torture a dead person, do a seance. <laughs> right, right. That's very funny. <laughs> because it's forcing their, their being, their sort of unbounded being into this kind of uh, embodied circle, which is like really difficult and painful. Yeah. Um, and excuse me, I just want to say, Madame Blavatsky had a, had a, had a other criticism of spiritualism. She said, you have access to the spirit world like this and this is all you're doing with it. <laughs> like, <laughs> right, right. Right. Well, I mean, that's true with like, that's true with the Alan Moore thing, right? Like why the fuck do you want to levitate your car? Now right. I do. Uh, I, I think that there's a line there though, because a lot of people who say that, and I don't know, I don't think Alan Moore believes this, but I don't know where, you know, there's a way in which people say that and it's implied that nobody could levitate the car. Right. But in fact, I do think that that is possible. I mean, if you, if you look at certain histories of, uh, especially um, there are documents of, of Buddhist and indigenous people doing things that have real immediate physical effects. Yes. Um, 
you know, and those documents come from Buddhists and indigenous people, but also uh, from cross-cultural encounters and that sort of stuff. I do think that some of that stuff is possible and it does happen. But again, um, a lot of times, like in Buddhist teaching, you'd be told, well, you can learn that kind of stuff perhaps on the way to something greater. But just well, but that's the point, exactly. Yeah. So these things don't need to be repeatable because they're contextualized within that tradition, within exactly. the moment, within, again, this, you know, to, to further some other thing. I mean, this is that whole idea of, I think in Buddhist thought, it's, it's the, correct me if I'm wrong, it's the cities where these sort of magical powers that can become actually a distraction. Uh, yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. So you're certainly going to like, you know, depending on your path that you may have access to these things. Um, but there are steps along the way. There's a really, really wonderful book. Um, it's a, it's a, um, it has some Jewish, um, it's, it's probably written by a, a medieval Jew and it is a grimoire which purports to uh, describe all the levels of heaven. And with each level, you uh, meet a series of angels and their cohort to teach you a particular kind of magic. Okay, And they're very traditional magical things that you're going to find in grimoires, treasure hunting, you know, uh, winning at, at the horse races, you know, things like that. So, and you get, you move through these successive levels to, through the seven levels of heaven and each one becomes more complex. And there's, you know, the beautiful listing of all the names of all the angels. Um, I'm sorry that I'll have to get you the name of the text um, mm. after, but, and um, the last level though, you would think, okay, the magician, rabbi, whatever, has made it, and they're going to be given all the final magical secrets of the universe. The final level is just a prayer to the holiness of God. <laughs> That's it, right? So all of that work, <laughs> right? The thing that you're really getting to is just like, just <laughs> In, 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 in a, a direct encounter with the divine and you're just supposed to say, just, you know, holy, 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 right? That's the, um, and I just think that that's another wonderful example of what we're talking about where they sort of like, yes, it may, whether or not these things may or may not be possible in these ways, but they are in many traditions steps along the way to something that actually those things are not even of value anymore. Yeah. Well, I mean, so maybe this is a good point to talk about uh, the irrelevance or whatever of the reality of some of these things. I mean, I think that's a really great point. And I also think like I go a little crazy when um, (laughs) I mean, you've obviously fleshed this out a lot more in your work than most people. So it doesn't drive me crazy so much when you do it, but I get a little crazy when people say, especially anthropologists or sociologists who are studying paranormal supernatural, like whether the phenomena are true or not is, is irrelevant to our investigation. And I just think, you know, it drives me a little nuts. Like I, I know (laughs) um, like you can read an anthropology text and, 
you know, someone will be telling the anthropologist, look, I was lying on the beach and a wolf vomited foam on me. And after the wolf vomited foam on me, it told me that I would not get smallpox and blah, blah, blah. And the anthropologist will be like, what does this tell us about the kinship system? You know, what the fuck are you talking about? Why there? You know, like, <laughs> right. and, and it'll drive me a little crazy. And so, so there's just that, that point of interest, but also, I mean, I think if the dead are, with us, you know, if the dead are uh, pe- people, human beings in a way, if uh, elemental beings exist, if angels exist, all that, it, it is necessary, there is a moral and ethical component about us accepting the reality or not of those beings and understanding how to interact with them. I mean, it, but here's what I would say to that for myself, and this again yeah. may, may be very unsatisfying. To me. <laughs> I believe that there is an idea of elemental beings and angels Uh and that I as an individual can attune my consciousness in such a way as to engage with those ideas that personify them, that allow them to, and I may be even in that particular state of consciousness, be able to quote, communicate with them or in, 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 in treat them for some favor or whatever. But I am merely, and I use, again, merely not to diminish it, but just to say the difference between the idea and the thing, that it's I am engaging with an idea rather than – I, for myself, just would never say that I am engaging with an angel. I would say that I am engaging with the idea, which is already complicated and bound up in – different traditions and my own things that I've read and maybe something from an old Ray Bradbury book that I read that I forgot about when I was a kid. And that becomes part of my understanding of it. And, you know, all the ways in which we can never get to some, um, you know, some notion of any of these things that isn't so layered with all the cultural, historical, literary and artful baggage, right? That, that, so when we even talk about an angel, what are we even talking about? Right. right. Um, and so again, for me, it's, it's the idea made manifest via all this palimpsest of all this stuff. Um, and that I can sit on my couch and I can meditate and I can engage with that and, and be, and, and, and maybe even there will be some, something that I would say to you changed in my life as a result of that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's real like that. And that's when I say it doesn't matter if angels are real in a, in, in a measurable sense. It only matters that those ideas absolutely are real. Well, uh, yeah. are living, right. Well, living is, see, for me, living is a different word than idea, right? There's something in that, like, um, so what you're describing from my stance, that's, that's Hegelian. I mean, Hegel is really interested in saying, like, basically, when two people are sitting down and talking to each other, it's two ideas interacting. I mean, it's sort of what that philosophy could be boiled down to. And then you have marks following that and saying well it's really just two material conditions sort of flowing in and out of each other in a way like it becomes more and more sort of materialized over time i mean for me it's like 
if if I if I'm going to think about an elemental being or an angel or a ghost or whatever, I need to encounter their livingness and their beingness that in the same way that I would, I would try to encounter another human being, not because they're the same and not because the sort of rules of engagement would be the same as with another Mm -hmm. human being, but because there's the same, kinds of or there's an overlap in certain moral and ethical obligations there so for instance like you know when people talk about fairies here in ireland or in the faroe islands or some other places there's a an idea that the fairies have sort of gone away because the electromagnetic um interference like they really don't like it and they hide and in fact i just had someone tell me recently that she was encountering the reemergence of these elemental beings because of the quarantine conditions that had sort of silenced everything for six weeks about, you know, and uh, up to six weeks. And so, um, and the idea is that the electromagnetic stuff also has a being related to it. Those are different beings and they're almost counter beings in a way Mm. that to the, to the elemental beings. So without acknowledging that kind of livingness, I think it becomes harder to um, determine the ethical and moral dimensions of working together and communicating and having relationships, you know? And so, um, I mean, I think some people regard animals and plants the same way, you know, for, for instance, in the way that I'm, I'm talking about, it doesn't mean that you don't eat a plant just because it's a living being. It means that you might have a different relationship to it than if you just thought it was food, you know what I mean? So I think that that's, that's kind of where that line gets, uh, needs to be more pronounced for me between the, the two things. Although, I also think we can, you know, I mean, it's like, uh, what is it, uh, Bishop Berkeley, right? It's just like, he might say, you know, well, we're just all ideas too, and we can come up with some great scientific way of interacting with each other from taking that for granted. And I, I, I like that as well, in a way, it's very interesting to me, but I would just sort of worry about what the implications were if we didn't take it that one step further you know but you but you can only take it that one step further where the communities that that sort of um circle around those ideas agree on the particulars of that language and talking about those things in that mm-hmm. way right mm-hmm. this was i wrote um i don't know if you saw it, but i i wrote an article about this specific issue about belief and non-belief um mm-hmm. for the paris review and one of the stories that I told in that, I don't want to say too much about it um, here. It's just a long story. Folks can go and look at it if they want. But it's essentially an experience I had um, where I was presented with the idea that a boy that um, I was was at a dinner party by his parents uh, told me that their son was a bodhisattva. Mm-hmm. He was two years old, three years old. And in the moment that they told me this, were telling me this, I absolutely knew without a doubt that what they were telling me was true. Mm. I, it was as if, and I describe it as if I felt like I was suddenly um, being hypnotized. Mm. I, uh, you know, I, I was in a completely altered state of consciousness being told this. And in, within that state of consciousness, I knew that it was absolutely true that this boy was a, was a bodhisattva. And 
but uh, there's a couple of things here. One, it didn't now, it didn't turn me into a Buddhist. I, I don't, you know, I didn't then um, absorb later the whole metaphysical dimensions of what it would mean for there to be a living bodhisattva in the suburbs of Arlington, Massachusetts, you know, uh-huh. sitting on the floor and all of that. And so, but I did, re- so, so I was able to have the experience of that and allow that to be, to be enchanted by that, by their truth in that moment. But within the context of their community, that's going to play out in very different moral and ethical ways, right? (laughs) And so it doesn't need to play out for me in those ways. And so a lot of times, yes, what we're talking about is we're talking about, you know, we can only get a glimpse, I think, into certain ways in which that's taking place for other communities. Um, it's the same thing about being, you know, I've been to gospel um, services and they've been completely swept up in that in a way that I would say were, are absolutely um, profound spiritual experiences. And yet I do not have, I, I'm not a believer in, in Jesus as the Messiah. And my moral and ethical demands on that moment that I had are going to be very different from that community um, around that same belief and the experience that they're having around that church service. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it makes sense. I mean, I think that the thing I would add to what you're saying, because right, I mean, it's because it, it's it's true whether you want to carry it as far as I'm saying it or not, that different communities, different people, different individuals as well will encounter um, different kinds of beings, ideas, livingness, all that in different ways. The, The only thing I would say to add to that is that, you know, we mostly contend with one version right now. Right. Like we all have, which which is really funny to me because, you know, we call things altered states of consciousness. And yet, you know, there is no non altered state of consciousness. I guess that's true. Right. It's all, it's all spectrums. It's spectrums of consciousness. Yeah. It's all, it's all completely weird. And so when people are like, oh, well, you know, I went, I, I, I had this drug experience and I'm like, well, aren't your dreams weird? Like what about when you're fucking? What about when you're meditating? What about when you're driving the car and you've extended your being into the car? What about, you know, it just, there's no place to rest. And yet we have a narrative, um, an idea or a map or whatever we want to call it. That's so strong that it doesn't allow much deviation from it um, without, ridicule or pathologizing or whatever it may be. And I'm just talking really specifically about a certain kind of so-called Western culture, of course. But I think that those, um, yes, they'll be experienced differently in different communities, these spiritual events and beings and and maps. But um, to the extent that they're up against something that feels monolithic, that is where I find okay, there is actually a kind of moral battle happening, you know, in right. some way. It's like the, um, you know, uh, how Owen Barfield describes saving the appearances when he's d- discussing Galileo and saying, you know, the church persecuted him not because he had 
an idea, you know, not because he had the ideas that he had, but because he said that they were the only ones that were true. The church <laughs> right. wanted to say that they were the only ones that were true, right? So it was right. a battle, but, but there were lots of people who had all kinds of ideas that were not exactly biblical that were accepted, but it was actually the, the truth claim, the overwhelming truth claim that didn't become very dangerous, you know? And so I think that that's kind of the thing that, you know, I, that, that, the person with the bodhisattva kid in their living room is up against, you know, it's not just, uh, it's not just that their community will accept it differently than you. That's okay. Right. Because yeah. 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 And it's, you know, and it goes to the whole idea of how we can, you know, that's why I'm, I'm a little bit um, soft on the idea that, you know, all religions are ultimately the same and, and, and draws to sort of Uh the same place because, you know, believing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah was resurrected and will come again is very, very different from a Buddhist notion of rebirth and cycles and enlightenment. You know, I mean, certainly some of the language in there that, um, and some of the ethical truths might be perennial, right? To use that word, um, but but I do think that we have to be careful, and that's why it's very difficult to, like you're talking about, to make these strong claims in that way because they we have to allow for others' own experiences that might be just as profound and yet can't be they they wouldn't be able to be absorbed into their own you know you, metaphysics right right like wouldn't um, it be wouldn't it be interesting for you to be able to go and talk to these people with the kid and find out how that flows in and out of what you believe what someone who is a christian believes what right. someone who you know find the ways in which these actually connect and grow from each other rather than um having the uh, not saying that you have this exactly but having a sense of distinct separation like a radical break when you're in the room versus when you're somewhere else right and so right. i think that these the religions you know that's for me I've always hated that Joseph Campbell bullshit. I will call it because it drives me crazy. <laughs> but yeah, like, the, but the, no, me neither. But just you know, it's like we 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 should see religions as I think each religion is a pathway to a different being, and as you enact the religion, it evokes that being in your life, right? And That's so, right. So you know, e- even amongst Christians, <laughs> there are different beings. You know, yeah, right. kind of Christianity. So. Um, you know, that kind of totalizing idea there, you know, that they all, or, or, or maybe to put another way, since you're, you're bringing up, I think is exactly right. Consciousness so much is like, you know, if you look at a picture of a sculpture of Isis holding her baby and her hands are sort of stiff and her eyes are kind of blank and whatever, and she's holding this baby. And then you have, you know, a Renaissance uh, or later painting of the Virgin Mary holding Mary, right? Jesus, yep. right? 
people like to say, you know, like Bill Maher or whoever the fuck, like they'll be like, oh, oh that's like, yeah, yeah it's like, oh, like it's the same story. We've seen these same stories time and time again. But when clearly the emotional resonance and content between those two, it couldn't be more different. Like the exactly. And so exactly. there's an event in consciousness that has happened between those two. And so that's by right. By we saying might that repeat all the-, the symbols themselves, sort of like this, the festivals right. or the things, right? Yes, but that that's exce- that's that's really really great. So, so, so having so when you see those. If, if you say all religions are the same, or you say all technology to be real has to be has to have a repeatability factor or whatever, what you're actually doing is you're prohibiting growths in consciousness. You're limiting the kinds of events that can happen within consciousness. And so it's, it's creating real blocks and kind of gatekeeping, you know, for uh, who we can be, you know, and that again, goes back to part of the reason why I want to talk to you, which is about these technologies that actually expand the possibilities for that rather than just contract. Right. Them. And that's what the hacker does. And that's also what the magician does. And the magician mm-hmm. often does that within the context of a tradition. Right. Uh-huh, I mean, uh-huh. we talk. We like to, you know. There's that. That certainly there are, you know, um, resonances of various types of magical practices. But let's look at like the the you know Western esoteric tradition for the most part, drawing you know a lot from say like the Golden Dawn and things like that, and that being you know coming from sort of like this Renaissance, you, you know, magic. I mean, these for all intent and purposes you know, despite their Neoplatonic leanings, a lot of these, you know, Renaissance um, magicians were Christian, right? First and Uh foremost. Uh And so magic becomes exactly the kind of thing you're talking about. It becomes a way of of hacking it, Uh right? So it's not to, it's not to destroy it in any way. It's to unpack it. It's to, I like to use the expression, void the warranty. You know, they basically like Mm. void the warranty on their Christianity, um, mm-hmm. by taking it apart and showing that there are sort of these other ways of sort of engaging with it that sometimes are seen as heterodoxical by virtue of you having broken something that you're not supposed to play with. Just like when I, if I tried to open up my iPhone, I would be guilty of avoiding the warranty. It's heterodox to do that, right? But the hacker and the magician, you know, in that, to, if, if we, if, and I really like having those things sort of be on the same mm-hmm. uh, plane um, because they're both sort of doing the same thing. And so when we think about technology and, and use technology as a location where both of these things can take place, right, where you can, you can hack it but, um, because you want to uh, break into, say, some secure server – but you can also say take a radio like I talk about in Strange Frequencies that is intended to pick up, you know, the FM station so you can listen to, um, you know, the top forty, or it can be hacked, literally hacked, so that you can try to communicate with spirits of the dead. Uh huh. Right? Yeah, I th- I think I think that hacking idea is great. It, it's funny because 
Gordon White, who hosts Rune Soup, and I have talked about this for a while. He's like, you know, I'm kind of hacking the chaos magic stuff, and you're, well, not hacking. He's like, I'm doing this kind of renegade version of this. You're doing the renegade version of anthroposophy. And uh, these Peter Gray and Alquistis, who run uh, Scarlet and Print, are doing the yeah. renegade version of witchcraft, right? So right. it's th- this idea of sort of getting in, and yeah, there's a kind of undoing and being like, well, we're, we're going to use these. Uh, materials and they really are important materials, but there's more to be done here. And I think that there is that kind of ossification of uh, these traditions and they they can be ones that we actually think were rebellious. Right. So like you see, like you bring up the, the Cottingley fairies that um, Arthur Conan Doyle talks about <laughs> yes. where it's like, Oh, you could take a picture of the, you could take a picture of the fairies and then it was revealed. No, that was actually just bullshit. And he's like, well, nevertheless, we could use a, we could have these glasses or this device and we'd be able to do it. And w- when I read that, I just thought, why, why do you keep thinking about like the device, man? Like it, it why do, why does he keep thinking about yeah. using the same kind of thing? It's like he got sort of trapped in it instead of using it as a springboard for something else that could come next. Or, you know, I mean, you could have basically Wiccans who, you know, a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times are just sort of like liberal environmentalists who have like a spirituality kind of laid over what they're Mm -hmm. doing at a certain point, but it's actually completely materialistic in its own sort of uh, deep ecology way. And so I think that there are lots of different ways in which things that we think might or, or might've been hacking in the past are now <laughs> this sort of, uh, you know, densified, solidified, like it's holding on to, uh, that's something right. That needs yeah. To, like, I mean, that's right. Exactly. I mean, the, uh, you know, you see, um, you know, I think the example again is exactly the right one sort of, you know, modern occult, um, fraternities, right. That were uh-huh. once, you know, supposed to be, you know, breaking through and um, synthesizing all these different things, right? And now they become so um, calcified, right, and codified that they take on this air of, uh, you know, you talk to some some folks and they, and, you know, and it, it takes on this air almost of, of, of sort of occult privilege, right? Mm-hmm. That there's, you know, this idea that, there is some perfect transmission, you know, but that, yes, all the, the transmission has always been hacked, right? Uh-huh. It's uh-huh. always a synthesis. It's always a rebuilding a taking apart and putting back together again in all traditions, but there's nothing wrong with that either. I mean, there's this idea that if you say, if you say, if you try to say, I'm sorry, there is no unbroken line from Freemasonry to the supposed Rosicrucian you know, folks, and that it's a direct transmission. If you say that somehow you you're you've undermined something that's essential about it. Whereas I want to say what makes it essential is the fact that it was hacked all along the way. Right. Right. Well, it's why like, it's why like, uh, I mean, they're not so huge anymore, but why like the new atheist crowd always irritated me was like, you guys are still impressed by Copernicus. Like it's time to move on. You know, (laughs) like you've been holding on to that for a really long time and we've got other things happening. Yeah. And I think, um, but I think, you know, that's interesting too, because that leads me to the ways in which, 
we privilege wonder, like a sense of wonder as always being a good thing, you know, like we always think of, if you have wonder, like, but it's not always. I mean, I think for instance, you know, the whole SpaceX shuttle or whatever that went up yesterday, was it? And I just thought, well, I mean, fine, you know, that people are like, oh my gosh, this is so wonderful. But yet, of course, you look at what's happening in the world right now and you think that's what you're spending like your millions of dollars on. And I mean, I'm, I'm of two minds because I do think though that we need that. There is a particular kind of hope that comes with that kind of uh-huh. technological wonder. And I think that space is still one of the last few places that we can still, you know, you talk to astrophysicists, astrophysicists are like the last of the scientists that still sound religious. You know? uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? So there's still that. I still think there's value, but you're right. I mean, it's, it's sort of like know your audience here. Like look at <laughs> the state of things. <laughs> but it's not, it's not just like, yeah. I mean, it's not just that in the sense of like, um i agree with you that there needs to be scientific innovation that relates itself to wonder at whatever you know financial costs there might be there um, or whatever but i just think you know someone like elon musk is actually where wonder goes to die you know it's like where it gets strangulated you know he he takes tesla (laughs) and he sinks it into the most boring thing in the entire world and that somehow seems to trap people's sense of wonder in these idiotic cars or like you know he's sending this rocket up I mean I think I do worry about that I do worry about the way that wonder and narratives then become trapped so for instance um, related to Elon Musk there's this idea of fear uh, and anxiety, and I think it's founded about the rise of hyper surveillance capitalism, mm-hmm. surveillance machines, surveillance tech. But for us to buy into that, or for us to buy into, you know, like a 5G net around the entire planet, which also seems b- bad to me, not because it causes coronavirus, it just seems like a bad fucking idea to me to have like right. Wi Fi at Yosemite. But like, w- like, for us to buy into that, there needs to be, there is some sort of wonder story that's trapped in those. Like we have some kind of alluring narrative that's oh, yes. bringing us to those. And I, I'm not exactly sure how that works or what that is. Cause when I stand back, I'm like, I don't want some fucking billionaires sending rockets, up, putting 30,000 satellites in the ionosphere to send down microwaves into our, you know, phones so we can have like faster access to, you know, like mattresses.com, you know, like I just, you know, like fuck you. Like, so, but there is, there's something there that's trapping people's wonder. I would say, I mean, I'm being, I know some. Yeah, people, no, I think we're. I don't we're want to just still, be a false consciousness argument. I mean, some people. No, really it like has it, to do with technology. It has to do with, you know, human innovation and us being sort of in this, you know, in charge of our own destinies. And, you know, that's a big part of all mm. of technological innovation. It's, you know, there's, there's, it, there's a hubris that we adore, mm, right? Mm, that we mm. can do this. And that it makes like we're living in the future, you know, sort of all that kind of language that we use when we talk about technology in that way. I mean, can you imagine like the very first um, television, one of the very first televisions, I talk about this in Strange Frequencies, the way that the 
um, television is described is not um, we are living in the future, but the dreams of witches made real. <laughs> That's how we used to think about technology in some ways, right? It was that there was still this sort of ancient power that we were finally controlling, but we've lost that kind of wonder. Now it's about we have we have done away with those kinds of things to make these thing other things possible. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Do you know that when planes like uh, beyond just like the Wright brothers or whatever, but when planes that could fly long distances uh, were created, people said, "Oh my God, this is finally going to end war." Because right. there's not going to be any <laughs> borders anymore, so we'll all get right. along. When in fact, everything was supposed to end all wars. Every like great right. innovation, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I I think also um, it's interesting that you say hubris because I'm also thinking about the t- that legend, which I think is true, of the people going to the movie theater and the train, the movie of the train. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And they ran out. Like in some ways. That's, I can't cope with the, re- I, I don't understand the reality it's going to come through. But in another way, there's almost a piece in there. Like if I look at that psychoanalytically, that's like, we can do this. We can make a train, you know, on a screen come through, even though I know that that's not true, you know, unconsciously or subconsciously somewhere in me knows that that's not true. I still have to perform the running and screaming out because that tells me I have power the power to do that, that human beings have the power to do that. So, yeah. I mean, but that's all that, I mean, that, but that gets back to the ways in which the stage magician and even the shaman work, uh-huh. right? They're dependent on our willingness to go into that state where things that should not be real are real. Right. Right. right? Yeah. And, well, and <laughs> I mean, we don't, we don't even have to go to the shaman, right? Like we, we, you flip a coin you know, to make a decision. What? I know, exactly. It's, that's the, yeah, that's the way to say. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to, and you see that, you know, we think that like when Two-Face and Batman does it, it's crazy. Oh, he flips uh, yeah. the coin and then he decides to kill somebody. But any decision to flip a coin or roll a die or, you know, play rock, paper, scissors to win something where you shift the agency into the object or the motion. Yeah, it's is divining. Really, yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, it's really interesting. Well, speaking of divining, or channeling you did this uh thing where you channeled arthur uh machin machin is it Machen? oh arthur macon yeah, yeah for yeah. um the oh you saw that on the um uh the weird website that blog from some years back yeah yeah it was it was pretty old but you yeah at, like basically uh someone interviewed arthur machin through you Right. Um, right. <laughs> and I want to ask you about that experience. Um, first of all, cause I'm really wary of channeling, but I didn't know if it, if it felt like, um, you know, you were turning yourself into the instrument in that case. Right. So, yes, but it was only again, drawn wholly from what I was channeling and, and it lets you, and I say this with, with, it sounds like again, like I'm making fun, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. I was per, I was channeling an idea of Arthur Macon. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Right. The spirit of Arthur Macon. I, you know, I. I mean, what can I say to that? I personally, I doubt that that's what was happening. But that doesn't make it any less <laughs> of a thing that 
I was able to do. But that idea came from having read his short stories and some of his biography and my own Mm -hmm. wishes or hopes of what kind of person he might have been, right? And all of that becomes a personification. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, do you know the – so James Merrill, who – Oh, yes. Wrote, wrote his books with oh, his partner, David yes. Jackson, using the Ouija board. Well, oh, there, yes. Yep. There's some extra text to that, which are really interesting, where um, it was in the Paris Review. Well, it's the second time the Paris Review has come up in one episode. That never really oh, yeah. happened. Um, where he and um, David Jackson used the Ouija board. They contacted Gertrude Stein, who told them that uh, W.H. Auden created global warming as a test for humanity. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, you don't know what's going to come out when you enter into that state. But that also worries me, like turning yourself into the instrument, which in fact is in some ways is exactly what the rabbi asked you to do when you were, when you, when you asked how to make a golem was to sort of turn turn yourself. You are the golem. Right. right but that worries me because like if you've ever seen you know that movie or read the graphic novel my friend Dahmer, where oh, yeah jeffrey Dahmer does this thing it's kind of a joke at first where he does this sort of fake seizure um for his friends and he does this sort of like ticking moaning kind of thing but then he keeps doing it and keeps doing it and his friends say they're not into it anymore, but then he continues to do it in like a major way. And I always viewed that and I thought that's the exact minute when he became inhabited by whatever it was that drove him, you know, eventually to become this ritualistic murderer who had all these symbols and stuff on his wall. In other words, that there's some kind of, um, when you turn your body into the instrument, um, rather than externalizing it into the coin toss or uh, the EVP device or whatever you want to do, that you you become a sacred site in a way that most people can't handle, that most no. people aren't. No, really I mean, that's why it. if you look at it looks when you look at images of like, um, you know, uh, voodoo, you know, um, hmm ceremonies or things like that where people are being totally inhabited it looks violent Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right it's not a pleasant thing it doesn't look like you're being kindly taken care of by the spirit it looks like you're being you know um well you were you were freaked out by the exorcist i remember hearing as well right gosh yeah that that, that movie ruined me (laughs) 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 but that is that speaks to me for the need of like the need for technology, the need for devices, the need for representation. Um, again, there's yes. a Rudolf Strauner quote where he says something like machinery is thought poured into mineral where you oh, have, that's so cool. yeah, it's beautiful, right? Like where you, where you pour an aspect of yourself into something and then the rest can meet you there. It's a, it actually becomes a dimensional meeting portal, you know, um, for an effect. And so, Rather than just turning it over to the machine, which has this horrible AI robotic crazy right. SpaceX effect, or or, or just uh, allowing it to come through yourself, which can have a possessive effect if you haven't had like years of training on how to deal with that. Right. You put it in this mediator, you know. Yeah, and I recommend that you uh, any listeners uh, read an article. You should be able to find it online. It's called Errormancy, and it's by Kim Casconi, uh, the experimental uh, musician. 
and he writes about be you know as an experimental musician and coming to rely on the divinatory aspect the, the divinatory potential of glitch as uh-huh. an electronic musician uh-huh. right and again that becomes a way in which it's you i mean it goes to this whole thing from the keely thing we're talking about you absolutely have to have the person there doing that interpretive work right acting as sort of the you know it goes it's like you have the per, the the musician the machine the glitch it's all it's a circuit right you can't take one away um for it to work it's not going to work on its own like an ai mm-hmm. right and you're not inhabiting it you're not just glitching your head isn't just glitching out which as we talked about can be a danger right so you have this incredible relationship between the musician the the electronic in, instrument whatever it is a synthesizer the recording devices and arising out of that is this are these moments of of glitch that produce these potentials for new ways of understanding the music that you were making, mm. you know, all of that. Yeah. I love that. And then if you form a band, you can call yourself a coven of glitches. <laughs> hey, 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 somebody's got to do that. Oh my God. <laughs> um, well, listen, I, um, there are 8 million more things to talk with yeah, you about, but I think uh, we should stop there. And um, I just, um, yeah, I'm really, I'm really happy that you're doing the work that you're doing. I think it's, it, it may be even more necessary and urgent than you think. And again, because I look at the ways that people misuse and think about technology at, at, at large, and so having this new kind of inroads or at very old inroads, but one that you're articulating in a new way, I think is really beautiful and really important. So I really thank appreciate you so much. that. It means a lot to me hearing you say that. Thank you. Yeah, and thanks, thanks everybody for listening. Thank you.